As Toni Morrison has put it, the destiny of the 21st century will be shaped by the possibility or collapse of a shareable world. Welcome to our podcast, where we explore the history, theory, and practice of democratic socialism with our guide, Big Mike. What can we learn from the past to help us create a better, more shareable world in the future? Okay, then we're off and running. I think this is uh, number three in a little mini-series on the topic of utopia. And last time we looked at the religious tradition in the West and some figures uh, in the Bible called prophets and what they, how to think of them under this general topic of utopia as calls for a different kind of society and as critics of the society around them. Any, 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 anything else you would emphasize about last time? No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. So then we, we, we're, we're about to t- turn to a philosophical tradition. To, well, to the Western philosophical Western, tradition. Western, yes, right. right. And so uh, that's where we are today. Okay, so again, just to remind you, Greg, yes. that we are... What we're really doing is putting together the syllabus of a of an introduction to an alternative education, and an alternative humanities education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue, for example, that um, we talked about a, a kind of religious component of it last time. Uh, now we're going to talk about a Western philosophical component. If this were television instead of radio. Or whatever it is. What is <laughs> yeah. a podcast? Is it radio? No, it's the internet. It's a podcast. Yeah, it's yeah, internet. Yeah. Whatever. Um, I would argue there's an art mm-hmm. component to it. So, And then I would go on and say there's a sociological component, which we will be able to talk about. But my point is that we, what I'm trying to do is, is suggest that we can rearrange, um, selectively choose the monuments that we ordinarily compose our educational curriculum out of Mm -hmm. and create thereby the the history of, because it does really exist, the history of of an alternative approach to society, right? So that's what we're... I just want to remind ourselves of, of what the... Uh, what the purpose is, because we tend to read these things in in, in classes and um, without making that distinction so much, mm-hmm. we lump all literature together without realizing that um, it doesn't all lump together as literature. Maybe there's there's establishment literature, and then there's literature that is anti-establishment. For right. example, right. All right. So, the, and with that as a as a point of departure, the first. Western document, obviously, that one needs to look at and look at in a, in a great deal of, of uh, in some detail is Plato's Republic, which, as I think I may have suggested before but want to reemphasize, we tend to re- read as um, almost as a moral document. I think there is a tremendous emphasis in the way we talk about Plato, particularly in our schools, uh, as if what he's trying to do is create 
a moral society, and the society detailed in the Republic is supposed to materialize, as it were, institutionalize that moral system that uh-huh. he was trying. But actually, one may argue that it was something quite the opposite, that really what Plato was trying to do is say, look, if we're going to live moral lives, we have to recreate society in this fashion. And then he proceeds to describe what he calls a republic, which, as we'll see, Thomas More would have called utopia. Uh-huh. And, the, the, and, and I think that's a slightly different take on it than we're accustomed to. Wait, I don't see the distinction yet. Well, the, the difference is reading it as a moral document, as a discussion of ethics. Uh-huh. And saying, you know, if you, this is the, this is an ethical system, a moral system. And, um, and, the, and the republic then becomes a representation of that moral system in institutional terms. And I'm thinking that it may have the opposite. It may be the opposite. In order to live a moral life, you have to have these institutions. Mm. So I'm saying he wants to rearrange the institutions of his society He's very disturbed by the, by the um, society in which he lives. You remember right. that one of the accusations that's brought against Socrates originally, and Plato, after all, Socrates is his mouthpiece, that uh, one of the, uh, supposedly, one of the uh, accusations brought against him is that he is destroying the youth. He's going around challenging the youth. Well, what does that mean? That means he's challenging the moral system that the, that the, quote, establishment, unquote, of that age was insisting was the way people had to live. Right. And, and Plato in the Republic is offering an alternative institutional arrangement. Um, I suspect that, much like a later debate, which we've already talked about and we'll come back to in time, that the issue of whether you create the institutions to allow the moral person to live or the moral person <laughs> is defined first and then creates the institutions, yes. is, the, is a problem I'm trying to raise with regard to Plato. Yeah. I'm very much impressed by the fact, for a variety of reasons, that Plato goes around looking for a prince who will create his republic. He fails in, in doing fact, that. In fact, you mean. What? In, in, in historical fact, fact yeah. yeah. So my point is, if he's really, if he's really just trying to describe a new morality, then why does he make that trip to Syracuse? It's a long trip uh-huh. from, from <laughs> Athens to Syracuse in those days, right? Right. But he actually wants to do it. He wants to create... This is not a, a, a metaphor for him. Right. This is a plan. Yes. And falls, therefore, into, a, into an experimental mode, much as we will see in the right. 19th century. Right. Similar people were... Does that... Yes. I mean, and to me, it, it, the plan... His most basic sense was my teacher Socrates was killed by his own community. That's exactly right. <laughs> and how can I, Plato, right. come to terms right. with the fact that somebody who is questioning his own community could be put to death? And uh, what what community? What would community look like if it were otherwise? If it were otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Plato lives from 427 to 347 BC, and, and I said, as I said, this thing that I think is most most important that he actually went around searching for a prince who would institutionalize this alternative model of society that mm-hmm. he that he had, and he concluded 
that the state that he wanted to see brought into existence was one which embodied, and he says, in his laws and institutions, the fundamental unity of the moral individual with the socialized state. Now, that's a comment on it that a later commentator made. And my, that's, that's very, but that's a very important point to make, that there, the, the, the idea that democratic socialism, that's why I'm always looking at these texts from that point of view, the idea that if socialism is to make any difference, it must guide the way I live my daily life. That's what Plato is trying to say. Mm-hmm. It must guide the, the way one must be, one must live out one's values. This turns philosophy, or it takes philosophy back to the beginning, which I think is also something very important. An, an awful lot of the, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm uh, treading on very thin ice here, but, but an awful lot of the philosophy we teach these days, or we talk about these days, or hear talked about these days, it doesn't really impact the way I get up in the morning or the way I talk to my friends. Mm-hmm. And um, which is not to say it's not important, but it is, it's, not a, it's not about daily life. Mm-hmm. And what Plato is really trying to argue is that you must live in a society which impacts your daily life and transforms you into the kind of person who merits living in that society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think that the that I, I I like to think of Plato, perhaps more of an experimental sociologist than as a right. philosopher. So, what some of the important um, elements that I think are crucial in the Republic are first of all a, a quest for for justice, mm-hmm. and I would emphasize that that this justice. Um, that he's searching for is very much a social justice. Um, it's not the it's not just the kind of justice that I would get when I go to court to try to gain back a piece of lost property. Um, he really argues that neither poverty nor riches can produce a just society, uh, and it, it's it's very significant to note that, for example. The uh, the philosopher Kings. Well, let me. Let, I would make this general statement more broadly. Nobody in Plato's society is rich. Mm-hmm, correct. They're they differ from each other. So you have you know four different groups, right? You have the philosopher Kings, who are the guys, and you have the guardians who provide the administrative and military infrastructure, if you will, um, and so forth. But none of them are richer than the others. They are distinguished from each other by their function in society contributing to the whole. They're not distinguished from each other by wealth. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and the distinction between them is very much, if we were to understand what he said, very much according to their... Characteristics. That is, I, I have in myself certain characteristics which make me X instead of Y. And I should therefore fulfill my function in society as X instead of as Y. Right. And, and that's a, 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 um, a vision of equality 
and of social justice based on a concept of equality that certainly flew in the face of, of society at the time he's writing, which is, a, as I say, why I think I read him as a social right. theorist, yeah. if you will. Flies um, in the face of current thinking. Well, also of current society. but Drives know, we, students we, crazy. We, we tend to create in our minds a very happy picture of ancient Greece, right? You know, with warriors fighting out, going out to fight the Persians and and uh, ladies playing the lyre dressed in white <laughs> gossamer dresses. But none of that's true, right? Right. I mean, it was a society which was incredibly unequal, a society of, in which slaves provided the, uh, a tremendous right. amount of work. Women were not included as citizens of that society, etc. I'm always I'm always amused that we think of of ancient Greece as as the as the cradle of democracy, the um, the percentage of the population that participated in the political system was tiny. Right. Yep. You know, I, I often I often try to anger people by saying that probably the most democratic society in the 20th century was apartheid South Africa, mm. because if you were white, you were in. Mm-hmm. The fact that 80, 90% of the population wasn't white, well, tough. Mm-hmm. But from the point of view of South African society, it was democratic. Right. So I, th- I think we, we, we badly misrepresent Greece. Or we could ask the question, why do we need Greece to serve metaphorically as the cradle of our of, of democracy when it was far from that? Or Well, right. And, or one thing you're saying is maybe... Plato shouldn't be taught without <clears throat> giving a lot of context for the society he was in and that Socrates was rubbing up against. I mean, there's this great little moment in the Republic. Don't know if you remember this. Very early, they're they're shifting to talking about the city or what justice would look like in a community. And Socrates says, well, it's pretty simple. We would, we would eat acorns because you can find them. They're easy to... <laughs> their easy food, and then we'd sit around and talk. And then one of his interlocutors says, um, but yeah, it'd be nice if we had couches to lie down on. <laughs> and he says, ah, okay, so the luxurious city is what right. we need to talk about. Right. If you want luxury, that changes the whole right. thing. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, so I think that's very important. This, another point to make is the, the tremendous emphasis um, he placed on education. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the what is it that was the primary characteristic uh, of the um, of the philosopher kings and the guardians? It was not income, and it was not power. It was education that was the source of their legitimacy, and um, and that's a, that rings with uh, that rings as a very modern kind of, of concept, and certainly a very strong concept in the way uh, of how should we think about uh, reorganizing even our contemporary society, uh, it, it starts me thinking along the lines that, that, that goes something like this, that we have education today, to, and we say this very nakedly, uh, to prepare our students to uh, compete in society, right. to make their way, to make a living, all of those kinds of things. The idea, which even when I was young, which is you know a couple hundred years ago, and I still, but I still remember faintly the idea that education was about creating citizens, 
Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about that anymore. Yeah. And uh, even at, at some of our greatest universities, that idea seems to have disappeared from our thinking. But really, that's an important element in the way Plato's is trying to describe what he thinks a just mm-hmm. society is. That education is the is the is a is the crucial element, and education for Plato is the uh, the source of power. Right. Right. I mean, if, yeah. if I am capable of being well education, then I become a philosopher king. Right. I'm the one right. then who sits there and dispenses wisdom and so forth and so right. on. And- yeah, and so the core content of that education is the wisdom, exactly. is the ability to choose exactly. well. Yeah. Then he he also argues that that the um, if you will the purpose of society is the happiness of all. That the that um, he's not really concerned that one group be happy as opposed to another, uh, and in fact the guardians are not particularly happy, nor the philosophers, the kings are not particularly happy, but happiness should be a characteristic of the city itself, mm-hmm. of the republic itself. That's, um, he's pre-Christian, which is perhaps the saving grace, if you will, because the idea of suffering as a value mm. is not in his, in his republic. Um, you know, blessed are the poor for they are always with you. That's not in his republic. Mm. So he really has a vision of, of equality and part of what you share is happiness, mm-hmm. and whatever that might mean. So how do you get that? Well, you have to reform um, even the family structure. This is not just abstract. He really is, is concerned with that. So while his ideas about what a family might be like or what intimate social relations might be like is perhaps different from our own today, it's nonetheless a useful template through which to think about difference. So he argues, for example, that women should be held in common as well. In other words, women who are a source of happiness and satisfaction, but they're also necessary for the existence of, of the society. They are a kind of wealth because it is they who produce the future of the society. Um, and if you're against private property, then you must be against private property and women as well. Mm-hmm. So he says that no one shall have a wife of his own. Likewise, the children shall be in common and the parents shall not know his child nor the child the parent. Uh, and that again is an incredibly radical educational ideal. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's it's not an idea that any of us today would willingly accept. I suspect, but it is consistent with the idea that um, you don't possess your children, mm-hmm. and that children are the wealth of the of the future of society and are themselves um, to be raised equally. Right, they're raised in a group. They're not raised as uh, to perpetuate their parents' egos or their parents. In fact, they won't have parents except biologically, mm-hmm. because they uh, uh, they are social. So I think that what he it's possible to extrapolate from this the idea that our primary being is social, mm-hmm. and that's why the children will not see themselves as parents. You, when you break down the traditional family structure, which is what he's suggesting here, then you end up understanding that, that, that I am human by virtue of being social. If I am human by virtue of being a citizen of the republic or a citizen of the city, uh, as opposed to being a barbarian who doesn't live in the city, 
if I am a human by virtue of being a citizen, that means I'm a human by virtue of being social. Mm-hmm. My nature is, is social. He doesn't talk about human nature then in the same way we do today. Yep. He's talking about yeah. it much more, I think. In a, um, but then he has some very startling idea, ideas. Um, it, 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 along with this, along with the fact that the children should be should be uh, um, raised, as it were, without parents. He also believes that parents who have the characteristics to produce certain children should be encouraged to have those children, and those who don't should be discouraged from having so. Today we call that eugenics. Um, uh, which, by the way, I, is, is, needs also to be mentioned as part of the utopian vision. These days, especially since the uh, uh, Hitlerian experience, the word eugenics has an incredibly bad odor about it. Mm-hmm. And people forget that, in fact, we practice eugenics every day, and we want eugenics to develop as long as it's called by something else. We are actively engaged in the, on, the, on the edges of medical science, biological science, in gene therapy, right. and in, in various ways of creating, of, of correcting defects even in fetuses. Yeah. That's eugenics. Yeah. What we are trying to do is produce a human race which is physically uh, more utopian than, uh, than ordinary nature uh, bequeaths to us that starts with Plato. It got a bad name, but we're practicing it today. Yeah. So, and so, also matchmaking. I mean, matchmaking. People, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, his idea that people should be encouraged. I'm reminded many, many years ago in Singapore, uh, a former student of mine, whom I was visiting, says, "Oh, by the way, uh, I'd like you to meet my wife." I, I didn't know you were married. He says, "Oh, yes." And, and I said, um, how did that happen? He says, well, Uncle George or Uncle Jack, I can't remember about Uncle, but Uncle James introduced us. I, said, I didn't know you had an Uncle James. He says, no, well, that's what we call the office, which introduces people of similar kinds so they can marry and have right. children. So the idea that Singapore was following at the time, I don't know if it's still doing this, was that if you had a college degree, they would introduce you to other people with a college degree right. so that people with college degrees could produce children who would earn college degrees. Yeah. It makes, by the way, uh, it's not democratic in our contemporary sense, but it certainly makes a kind of social sense. And we, we, um, if everybody had college degrees, you wouldn't need to think <laughs> in those terms. Right. So it's not, it's not just an ancient idea. Um, even though women were to be held in common, he does say that there is no difference between the natures of the man and the woman, but only various degrees of weakness and of strength. And that, again, ironically or paradoxically, opens up the possibility of the idea of equality, that what distinguishes me from a woman is my strength, but that also could be argued is what distinguishes me from someone older or younger than me or from another man or, or whatever. So that you, uh, this idea, again, is permeated with, the, with, with uh, equality. 
So one could go on with this, but I think that the the fundamental point I do want to make is this one of um, that the that the republic is a is a a plan. It's an outline mm-hmm. of an alternative society, and uh, as I said, I, I would teach Plato as a social theorist rather mm-hmm. than as a moralist. Yep. Yeah, so I I don't want to I wouldn't want to undermine your emphasis on the social aspect of <clears throat> being human, which I think is clearly there in Plato. But something that helps me a lot in understanding his project, and I use when I teach the Republic, is he's also you know in the conversation he's also talking about the self or the soul. Right. And so when we say via Plato that no particular part of society is happy. There's an analog, I mean, because that can sound bad on the face of it, but there's an analog at the soul level or the self level, that if we accept that we have parts of the self, and for for Plato that was the reasoning part, the spirited part, the appetitive right. part, that as with the self, where no no part will be particularly happy because to have a self they must act in concert. Right. Then, likewise, a society needs to. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's absolutely yeah. right. But, that, but the, the, one of the interesting things here in my mind is that his idea of the self is not a unitary self. It's it's got these components to it, right? And the same way society does. This is a radically different idea from the idea that, say, Christianity has of the soul. That's not the same thing mm-hmm. as that unique individual mm-hmm. right. element that I possess and you possess and we're so different from each other because of that. That's not what he's doing. Um, he's trying to simply, he uses this concept of what is what is it that makes us human? Well, here are the elements and those right. are the elements of what he Which calls Which we know by experience. We, we, yeah, we know exactly. we have different impulses. Exactly. And, yeah. and, I, and it's not that no particular element of society should be unhappy, right. but rather that there has to be a balance in right. all of this. And what is the proper balance? And what is the is proper the question balance? for self and, and that society. is a social question. Yeah. And that's one that we we should be thinking about right now. We are out of balance yes. in our present society, not only with regard to wealth, but also with regard to uh, the environment, et cetera. Right. Right? And then just to circle back, uh, the emphasis on the role education can play and how we try to tackle that exactly. current problem. Exactly. Yes. And that education... But but I, I yeah I want to make this very clear, to le- at least in my thinking, education not in the sense of, or not only in the sense of I can I can teach a student in my class these things, but education beginning and that is why this idea of the children being raised separately, not being the children of their parents, right? But education being raised uh, children who are born into and whose culture naturally educates them into this way of thinking. Right. That's right. the important point. Yes. We start formal education at the age of six, and then we say, well, then you got preschool, pre-preschool, we're going to have pre-pre-preschool undoubtedly, and then we'll have in uterus school, perhaps. <laughs> you know, every, all the fetuses can go to school together. <laughs> That's a very nice idea. But... Um, but my but what I'm trying to get at is that once we have a culture which we consider a a, uh, 
a livable culture, the children born into that culture will begin to imbibe right. from, yep. from the culture the values yep. that we're speaking of the same way as our children begin to, uh, in capitalism, begin to imbibe and it becomes part of their nature, competition. Yeah, right. Right? That's, yep. that's I think, a very, yep. very important uh, uh, thing to think about. Well, then just let me add then that short of short of Plato's proposal where you actually break families up, taking seriously the idea of a public education in common gets at something that Plato would absolutely, want. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one cannot imagine Plato's Republic with public high schools and then St. Paul's or Groton or one of these, or these private schools. I mean, that... You know, it is probably the case, as much as I hate to admit it, that you get a better education in some of these New England prep schools, right? And you get a better education there because the parents are paying a lot more for the education, etc. Yeah. But that's an utterly unequal yes, right. form of education. And in my opinion, is is part of the bedrock of the inequality from yeah. which we're suffering yeah. today. Historically, those those schools produced the elite, who were the founding fathers of the republic yeah. and all that. But um, but today, uh, one has to really ask the question of how long a truly social democratic or democratic social society would be able to tolerate um, elite education. Right. I think that's that's a very yeah. important thing yep. to uh, ask about. I wanted to say one more thing about about uh, this particular um, genre, and that is if one thinks of, um, of of the death of Socrates, the issue. This is something we've talked about in in classes for so long, right? Well, let me just say for yeah. uh, anybody listening who's not as familiar with uh, these texts. So just in brief, Socrates was a uh, an Athenian of a certain class, went around troubling his peers about what they thought was the right thing to do, what they thought justice was, their morality, etc. And as you mentioned, they eventually bring him to court on charges of corrupting the youth and on impiety, some kind of charge about religious um, beliefs and behavior back then. He gets put on trial and with a jury of about 500 people, they ultimately find him guilty and sentence him to death. So that's the death you're talking right, about. Right, the jury <laughs> being basically the, the, the quote, citizens, unquote, Correct. of Athens. Pure right? citizens. The people who yep. were... Now, the, the, but, but this raises this dilemma for us today, it seems to me. It's also, I mean, it, it raises a moral dilemma of great importance but from the point of view of, of uh, thinking democratic socialistically, if you want to <laughs> use that expression, how do we achieve change? Mm -hmm. So Crito comes in and says to Socrates, come on, we can escape. Right. You don't have to drink the hemlock and, 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 uh, and we can run away and fight another day. And Socrates' response that no, I was brought up by the laws, I have to live and I have to die by the laws, even if they're unjust, I must maintain that, is I think a way, an interesting way to think about the dilemma today between peaceful and revolutionary paths to achieving 
um, to achieving socialism. Mm-hmm. That that either you do find out how to achieve it. I mean, I think that's really part of what lies. I mean, you can you can use that text to raise this question today. Do we want to achieve socialism in as peaceful and and uh, organized a fashion as possible? Right. Maintaining those values that we consider to be human. Can you achieve socialism by being inhuman to your fellow human being? Right. And that's really the way I want I want to use that that text to think yes. about our dilemmas today. Because I, I think Socrates slash Plato's answer was pretty clear that you cannot be inhuman exactly. in order to accomplish exactly. human ends. So that yeah. raises a very, very profound strategic action, strategic question, question of strategy yeah. for those of us today who do want to achieve a form of democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. So you just want the question to float for now. Yeah, <laughs> we need to. We have to come back to it because this is yes. going to be a huge issue. No, right. Uh, I mean, this is one of the great issues that divided the left yeah. Uh, in the 20th century, and it's one of the great issues that today bedevils the left, because there are those people who uh, uh, who really just want to destroy institutions, right? And others who who understand that we need to work through institutions to achieve the change, and that's something we're going to have to right. discuss when we get there. To that yeah. point. But it root it's so deeply rooted. In the tradition yeah. that we're talking about, yep, that's yep. what I'm trying it's to there say. There from the start, yes. Not, of course, there are other. I mean, we could talk about Aristotle, but I don't want to talk about Aristotle. Um, skipping Aristotle, yeah, we we'll skip Aristotle. <laughs> that's uh, fine. He's with us far more than we realize. We are all Aristotelians. Even Karl Marx was an Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think Aristotle lends himself conceptually to what I'm talking about. Uh, he would, he's very important from the point of view of developing analytical skills and right. trying to understand society. But I would not make him as radical in his thinking as I think Plato is. And I'm there is one key thing he echoes, though, that I'm sure um, you would highlight is this phrase, man as a political animal, that comes from Aristotle. Well, but that, the emphasis on the social, right, political exactly. dimension of being no, of human. Course. That's, yes. That is... Yeah. That we we have no existence other than than uh, as members of a, of the of society. The polis. I think that's yeah. right. The polis. No, that absolutely is the case. So, along with this tradition and these 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 these, these kinds of this kind of thinking, also went on in Rome. And and there's a lot of Roman. We don't pay much attention to Rome because Rome figures in our minds very largely as a. Uh, source of law. We always talk about Roman law and and and, and law um, figures fills our imagination when it comes to Rome, as do other things. But but certainly not socialist thought. I mean, uh-huh. it's, very few socialists think back to Rome and find in Rome uh, much to in the way of thought to. Um, Discuss, but I think there is one thing in Roman thought uh, which was extremely important, which becomes extremely important in the development of the left in more modern times. Uh, there are two, th- one thing in thought and one thing in, in history. The thing in thought is that the uh, a distinction between what was called nat- what today we would call um, what was called then jus naturale and jus gentium. 
uh, natural law, the idea of natural law, which is very much uh, a Roman concept, um, at least as I understand it, have, have, uh, the idea that in nature there is knowledge, if you will. I mean, I think the, the ultimate root of it is that there, that there is in nature knowledge, and then there's this other knowledge, which is human knowledge, and those two are not the same thing. Um, the... Um, Freedom, for example, is is part of is part of nature, at least from the, from that way of thinking. It's from a pre scientific point of view. Animals seem to be free. Mm. Um, from the point of view of the law of man, which is the other form of law, uh, which develops out of commercial relationships, out of uh, out of warfare, uh, out of the out of a society. And, and, and therefore, you pose society over against nature. And that theme, understood in legal terms in Rome, um, is an important theme that runs all the way through Western thought and is a part of the radical tradition. Uh-huh. Because part of the radical tradition is to how, do we, how do we find a way of healing the, the gap between natural law and human law? Uh, the Christians, of course, have uh, their own particular way of, de- doing, of, of dealing with that. But today, in our, in our uh, environmentally, more environmentally conscious age, uh, there is developing very quickly, and this is why I wanted to refer to this, developing very quickly a school called eco-socialism. Mm. That is to say, you find people in the ecological movement who understand, in my opinion, absolutely correctly, that capitalism has no possibility of resolving the environmental issues we face. And that somewhere we have to be able to find a way of healing, if you will, the rift, of bridging the rift Hmm. between natural law and human law. How do we make human law more consonant with the realities of nature, Uh for example? Uh And that's a hard concept to deal with. But it's something we're going to have to. Now, I do not mean by this, and, uh, and please no one uh, think that I do, uh, you know, uh, re- the worship of Gaia. This is not a romantic idea at all. What, it, what the idea of it is to say is that democratic socialists need to confront the issue that we must behave in concert with the rhythms and forces of nature over which we really do not have control. Why is this an important issue? Because Karl Marx, for example, and, they, and even the capitalist theorists of the 19th century and philosophers had exactly the opposite point of view. Um, they accepted this ancient idea of a division between, the, between nature and man and the law of nature and the law of man, but they believed very deeply that man would control nature. Right. And the whole point about capitalism, the reason why Karl Marx finds capitalism uh, a progressive force in history, and he does, Marx is the echt philosopher of capitalism, not of socialism. Yeah. It's a small mistake that, <laughs> yes. that the Marxists make, uh, is that he, he understood that capitalism unleashed the ability of man to turn nature to man's use. Well, now we see the consequences 
And for uh, Marx, unproblematically, right? Unproblematically. This was a great victory. He understood this. He he really... he, he, by the way, he supported imperialism for the same reason, because he understood capitalism was a progressive element in history, and it enabled people, and, and if you go out into the colonies, it enabled the people in the colonies to be victorious over nature, just as it did people in England. Right. Now, mind you, that was unjust, and we have to change society, but the victory of man over nature is guaranteed by capitalism. Mm. But it's, but what what's concerns me here, and the reason I wanted to point this out, is the distinction between nature and man, yeah. which is not necessarily a given. It's an intellectual distinction. We are still suffering, and I want to argue, say it as suffering. We're still suffering from that distinction. Right. And part of our problem is how to overcome it, not in a romantic way, but to redesign our societies in such a way that they work in concert with nature rather than try to overcome nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just I'm just immediately thinking about the practical obstacles to that. Oh, I mean they're huge. <laughs> but of course they're huge. We know that. But by the way, historically it's very interesting to see where the Marxist position went. So in 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 the Soviet Union which is not, in my opinion, a Marxist society, but it called itself a Marxist society. And certainly, a lot of the uh, assumptions Marx made were operative within the Soviet Union. The idea of man over nature, that man could turn nature to his own purposes, right. resulted in terrible devastation. Uh, there were experiments with reversing rivers in order to irrigate the desert. Um, with irrigation, you could plant the desert with cotton. Of course, it, it immediately depleted the desert, and the cotton died, and and in great poverty, it began to use up water resources at an incredible speed because that's not the way the water was meant to to flow. Uh, even some some inanities, like the idea that if you, and Stalin had this idea that if you injected sheep with a blue dye of a certain kind, <laughs> they'd have blue lambs and that would be economically efficient because then you wouldn't have to dye the wool blue, right? right? right. Uh, utterly utterly inane. But this idea that man could conquer nature is deep in, it begins with this split between right. natural law and human mm-hmm. law and then is exaggerated into the disaster we have 2,000 years later now. And it occurs to me that also is in its deep-seatedness is also an obstacle because we think that our control over nature can solve it as well. Yeah, that's right. Rather than... And we can't. Right. I mean, I think that that we have to engineer. We do now have to do some engineering of nature. There's no question about that. But... um, We can't count on that. Well, we can't count on that. And we have to engineer society in order to live in concert, as I say, with nature. And that's not a romantic idea. Uh, I mean, that, that has to raise questions of standard of living and questions of equality, et cetera. Right. Why do you think so many people are unwilling to accept the facts well, that's a question of environmental that Many of us puzzle about, isn't it? I mean, we, as a friend of mine has pointed out over and over, we were able to get people to stop smoking. We can't seem to get, get them to stop emitting carbon. Yeah. Um, I think because the time, I remember last time we talked about different kinds of time. I think the time of lung cancer 
uh, is, uh, is shorter than my own biography. But the time of the pollution of the world is longer than my own biography. Right. Yep. And I think that's, that's one reason. I, we have not yet succeeded in incorporating the changes in nature into our own personal biographies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess, to come back to your point about this distinction in Roman law, is that if you can build into your worldview that relational dynamic, then it doesn't have to be just to solve a problem. It, it just it's becomes a way of life. the way you look at it's things. It's a way of life yeah. and a way you look at things, absolutely. But again, I warn it has to be in a non-romantic fashion. Yeah. What Is worries it, you about the romantic version? What worries me about the romantic? Yeah. Well, I think romanticism becomes an end in itself. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you get high on something, <laughs> you don't stay on that high. Yeah, if you're, you, we are social creatures. Mm-hmm. If we are humans, we are social. That's the, the point that we were making. Um, getting high on something makes me romantically, when I say romantically, I mean in an, in an ethereal kind of way. Yeah. Uh, I feel like one with the world. Right. But the fact is I'm not. That oneness with the world is completely contained within me. And when I <laughs> come out of my high, I'm no longer one with the world. Right. So... That's my fear of romanticism as a uh, yeah. way of life. Though, though our last discussion when we were talking about God, there was some sense that we need, sometimes we need a mythos. Oh, we, may, a, we may need that a, mythos, you know, but it, it, it has to be a, 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 a mythos which actually answers to our needs, not one right. which removes us from our needs. Oh. I mean, you know, I can... I can I can smoke a pipe of opium into oblivion. The world is still going to be there, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I think that, they, that, the, that an awful lot of evil in the world, an awful lot of exploitation and inequality was created by and legitimated by ideas of God, the church, religion, and so forth. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they have to be unequal or oppressive, but they are. Right. So the only way religion will become, the only way the idea of God or religion or the church will become something other than oppressive is to radically change. Mm-hmm. I think Pope Francis has that in mind. Yeah. And, and so the myth that, that it rests upon is valid as long as it brings about the change we're talking yeah, about, yeah. but not if it stands in the way. Right. And I don't think a pipe dream is the way to go that way. <laughs> well, so I, I know you have a longer list. I know that because I have some readings we haven't gotten to, but right. we're at our usual time. Do you well, want to push? We have, we, have, we have weeks and days ahead <laughs> of us. Okay, so this could be a natural break. But let me, I do want to come back to one thing as a way to end that we've mentioned many times in these discussions, the role of education, most pressingly on, with respect to its power to create a new future. But I just also want to say that um, in your review of this material, last time the religious material in the Western tradition, this philosophical material, that that material in itself helps invite us to think about 
current problems in a new yeah, way. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I certainly agree to that. I agree with you. But it's the vestibule of the of the of yes. the mansion, right? Right. So one of the questions is we can we review this work, we go through this work, we we read it, we teach it, we discuss it as a way can I start that sentence again? Yes. I don't believe education is ever objective. There's no such thing as objective education. We hold that idea up. We, we claim you, you should present all sides, but in fact, we don't. In fact, I as a teacher, which I sometimes am, I as a teacher have my point of view, and I present that point of view sometimes directly and sometimes quite unconsciously by my behavior, mm-hmm. for example. So it's very important that I tell you, if you're my student, that this is what I think, and there are other points of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't really tell you what the other points of view are. Honestly, I can I can describe them to you, but I don't right. believe in them. Right. I believe in my point of view. Right. So the, the to me, the idea that I can teach even-handedly in these fields that we're talking about uh, doesn't very doesn't make very much sense. What I have to do, to be honest is to tell you what my yeah. position is to begin with. That's what, as I say, that's what the kind of education that takes place in the vestibule. But when you move into the mansion of, of socialism itself, <laughs> I like that idea, right? <laughs> um, the question of creating an educational system, a curriculum, which will produce a human being who, for example, can live in harmony with nature instead of our sitting around and discussing the fact that we need to produce a human being. That's the kind of difference I'm I'm trying to make. And if you look at the history of education, you see that in various ages of history, the, uh, the, 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 the methods of education and the curriculum taught, et cetera, have changed depending very much upon the social system. Yeah or the ideology of the dominant class, or what have you. Right. We need, we, we talk about curriculum these days and about education these days as if it existed somehow apart from the social the society in which we live. Mm-hmm. And I'm arguing that when we talk about education today, we're talking about education for capitalism. Yes. And, it's t- and we need to start talking about education for democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's why we should look at these texts yep. and see how to use them in education for democratic socialism. All right, a good end. Thanks, Big Mike. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Shareable World. To find out more about this podcast, visit us at ashareableworld.com.